One of my seminary professors, who happens to be a friend of Heather's and is the co-founder of The Bible Project, Flex, Tim Mackey, once in a Bible class told a story about a community that lived by a river. And life in this community was really good. It was really beautiful. And regularly, the community would gather at the river to celebrate, to have picnics, to bring in new seasons with festivals and parties down by the river. And one day, as the community was doing normal life by the river, kids were swimming in the river, families were picnicking on the side of the river, they saw a very distressing sign. Three bodies floated down the river. The community saw these bodies floating down the river. They jumped into action and pulled the bodies ashore, and they found that these three people were still alive, but badly abused and hurt. So the community shows massive generosity and compassion. They nurse these people back to health. They bring them into fullness of life. One of the bodies they found was a small child, and when they can't find the family of this child, a member of the community adopts them into their own home as their own family. In this moment, they show great compassion to these bodies that floated down the river, and then life sort of goes back to normal until one day it happened again, and then again, and more and more Bodies began to float down the river, hurt and abused. And so the community that lived by the river builds an infrastructure of care to provide support and life-giving care to these bodies that are continuing to float down the river. They build hospitals to nurse people back to health. They establish therapists and psychologist offices to deal with the mental and traumatic wounds that these people had experienced. They set up jobs, programs, and adoption care in foster facilities in order to provide homes and to find places within the community for these people so that they might go back to life. One day, a group grows tired of seeing so many hurt people float down the river, and so they decide that they want to figure out what is the source of this pain and abuse that continues to make its way down the river and into this community. So they gather their gear, put their backpacks on, strap on their water bottles, lace up their hiking boots, and they head up the river to find the source of this abuse and to see what might be done about this pain. As they get to the end of the river, they find the source a massive factory that is spewing like toxic sludge and poison and hurt people back into the river that then floats towards their community. Tim Mackey told this story and then ended it by saying, to those who have ears, let them hear. Now we at Missio are currently in a series entitled Kingdom Come, in which we are exploring the book of Revelation. And if you remember from the beginning of this series, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, it starts with communities of Jesus followers who, in a sense, are people who have been pulled from the river, bandaged and brought back to life in order to participate in bringing people out of the river, bandaging them and bringing them back to life. 
Then in the last three chapters, we have sort of read a story that reads like the river expedition to find the source of suffering and evil in the world. In the last couple of chapters, we've been introduced to the source of poison, that factory at the end of the river. We met the dragon who is called that old snake from Genesis chapter 3, the deceiver of the nations, the one who sows narratives of lies and deceptions into the world. Then we met the two beasts, and Lydia, our pastor, told us they are counterfeits or parodies of power. In the ancient world, it was Nero in the infrastructure of propaganda that uprooted Nero's story of power and prominence in the world. And then last week, we were introduced to Babylon, which is pictured as the factory at the end of the river, that timeless, ageless, endless power, seemingly so, that continues to manifest in different kinds of ways. And in chapter 14, the text even talks about Babylon sort of like a factory. It describes how the world has been poisoned with the wine of Babylon. And so in those chapters, what we have done and what we have been introduced to is the source of evil. We made it up the river, found the factory. But in chapter 15, we begin a new section. A section that sort of picks up where the river story ends with the destruction of the factory, with the end of Babylon. This section of text from chapter 15 to 18 of the book of Revelation is sometimes referred to as Armageddon because in chapter 16 we find out about the battle of Armageddon. And the Armageddon battle is pictured in many ways like a final showdown between good and evil. When God confronts Babylon and all the sources of evil within Babylon and undoes it and tears it down. And that's true. That's what this conflict is. But in the next couple of weeks, what we'll see is that this battle is unlike any we could possibly imagine. But before we get to the battle, we are in chapter 15. And this section introduces the overthrow of Babylon and sets the stage for what comes next. And I think if we can understand chapter 15, it'll help us make sense of everything else that is to come, especially some of the difficult, even spooky narratives and imagery that comes with chapter 16, 17, and 18. And the reason it's so important for us to understand chapter 15 and why it sets the context is that in some ways, chapter 15 reads like our river story, a story of hurt and pain, an expedition to find the source of hurt and pain and to upend and end that hurt and pain in the world. Now, it's not a river story, but it is a first century equivalent to the river story, full of language and images that the people of God in the ancient world would have immediately understood to be about rescue. Because this passage is full of Exodus imagery. The passage talks about the song of Moses, which is a song about God's rescue of the people. It talks about the tent of meeting place. In the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was a gift of God's presence given to the people during the Exodus. And in chapter 16, which follows this moment, we hear about 
plagues. And those plagues are intended to evoke us back to the plagues that beseech Egypt in the Exodus rescue. And in the Exodus story, just for context, Israel had been enslaved by Egypt for some 400 years. When God hears their cries and rescues them. And from that moment on, the Exodus becomes an image of rescue and justice for the people of Israel. For example, in Exodus 3 verse 7, God tells us why God chose to rescue the people. It says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land. So God intervenes in Egypt in order to rescue people because he sees that they are suffering and hurting. It's like they are floating down the river, abused and wounded. And God walks up the river and finds that at the source of the river, at the source of the pain, is Egypt. And so God's going to deal with Egypt in order to rescue the people. And this becomes that image of rescue, which is then later referenced by God in Deuteronomy 24 to define what rescue and justice looks like for the people of Israel. God refers back to this moment and says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. So Exodus provides for the people of God an imagination for rescue and justice. And it's a justice that's different than we often imagine or think of in our modern context. Sometimes justice in our world, which is a phrase that's loaded with baggage and cultural weight and cultural debates, but sometimes justice in our world can look like punitive or retributive or even vengeful actions. Justice sometimes becomes about punishing wrongdoers, and that becomes the end of the justice story. But in God's world, and in the Exodus imagery, justice is about restoration. It's about making something right. It goes beyond punishment. It is not vengeful or retributive. It is about restoring something good. It is about healing. It is about making something right. To go back to the river analogy, justice is removing the factory, cleaning the waters, healing the people, and even healing those who work in the factory. God says this in Exodus chapter 7, that he is going to perform these mighty acts of rescue in order that the people of Egypt also will know that God is God. So John, the author of Revelation, has this imagery, this river rescue, this deliverance from Egypt imagery in mind when we come to Revelation chapter 15. And in using Exodus imagery, he's telling us what is about to happen. And he's showing us that what is about to happen in chapter 16, 17, and 18 is about justice. 
It's not retribution, but restoration. This is a section about rescue and healing and delivery. This is a picture of a new and bigger rescue moment. This is important to see because it frames up for us what's coming in the book of Revelation, and it helps us make sense of difficult ideas that then appear throughout this text. And maybe the most difficult, just for our own context, is the repeated talk of God's wrath. Wrath often evokes in us images that I think are opposite of justice. When we talk about God's wrath, it feels punitive or vengeful or retributive. It feels like this strange concept in our modern world that doesn't make sense of rescue. It seems so different than that. Sometimes God's wrath is talked about almost like it's like a pressure cooker, that God has been storing up all this anger, this like vengeance inside, and it needs to vent. And we see this in how we talk about the cross occasionally. We say that on the cross, God pours their wrath out on the Son. And though there's like biblical precedent for that language, sometimes what happens is that because wrath feels like a pressure cooker, we imagine that on the cross, God pours out their wrath on the Son till the pressure is released, and then God once again becomes some passive, maybe even happy old guy who were just kind of waiting to get angry again and then pour that wrath out on the world once more. In this kind of thinking, wrath becomes like a primary characteristic of God. Like as though God's identity, God's very nature, is wrathful. Maybe you've heard or even said a phrase like, God is loving, but also wrathful. God is good, but also just. God is good and loving, but also holy. Theologian Greg Boyd calls this a love but theology. I like to refer to it as a Sir Mix-a-Lot theology. But in this love but theology, something like wrath or holiness or justice becomes a counterpoint or a balance to the love of God. God is loving but also wrathful, like the flip side of a coin that somehow wrath serves to balance out the love of God, to give it some kind of weightiness or counterpoint measure. God is loving but. The problem with that understanding of wrath is that it isn't found in the writing of the Bible. In 1 John 4, the apostle John tells us that God is love, period. Meaning that God's essential characteristic is love, and every other reality of God is a feature or a condition of that love. God is love, Period. Love is not conditioned by wrath, but instead, wrath is conditional on love. God is love, essentially, eternally. That is God's primary identity. And so, therefore, all other expressions are conditioned by Love, and just in case we want to play funny with what love is, John tells us very specifically what love is and how God is loving. In 1 John 4, verse 8, 
John writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Apostle Paul says something very similar, but adds some weightiness and complexity to it. In Romans 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. So now, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a very interesting moment. God is love. And it is love that we know by looking at the enemy-embracing sacrificial death of Jesus. God is love, a love that makes way for enemies, that absorbs hostility into himself in order to bring to him those who hate him. God's love is all-embracing, enemy-embracing, yet at the same time, as Paul says in Romans, we still have wrath to deal with. But somehow that wrath is to be an expression of the enemy-embracing love of Christ. So if that's true, if God is most interested in restoration throughout the Exodus narratives, and that's framing up for us what's happening in Revelations 15, 16, 17, and God is primarily love, a love that is expressed on the enemy-embracing death of the cross, then what does that mean for wrath? Well, first, I think that wrath is God's feeling, the experience that God has to seeing evil, sin, and suffering in the world. God goes to the factory up the river. He goes to Egypt. God goes to Babylon and sees the poison and the hurt that is spewing into the world and gets mad about it. In Exodus 22, verse 21, when speaking to the people of Israel, God says this, Don't mistreat or oppress an immigrant, because you were once immigrants in the land of Egypt. Don't treat any widow or orphan badly. If you do treat them badly and they cry out to me, you can be sure that I will hear their cry and I will be furious. In the same way, we see Jesus get angry at the merchants and religious leaders in the temple complex who are making it difficult for people to worship without being exploited. Wrath is the feeling God gets at injustice. And it is good news for us that God gets mad in this way. If God was not angry at suffering, God would be cruel. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann says, love is the source and basis for the possibility of the wrath of God. The opposite of love is not wrath, but indifference. Indeed, indifference towards justice would be a retreat on the part of God from his covenant people. 
God looks at the hurt and evil and suffering of our world and gets angry, just as a loving God would. Now, sometimes when we talk about God getting wrathful at something, wrath can feel sort of one-dimensional. And so I really appreciate what Rabbi Abraham Heschel says when he writes, grief is what the God-word side of judgment and wrath always look like. In the Bible, the shortest verse, and maybe the most profound verse, is this simple phrase, Jesus wept. It pictures Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Or in Isaiah 53, the prophet writes that our God is stricken with grief. The picture that is created in here, I think, is more two-dimensional or multi-dimensional than sometimes wrath is pictured as... Instead of it being a one-dimensional feature or simply an angry pressure cooker, our God is one who is both grieved and angered by the suffering they see. Like a parent who watches a child be wounded and hurt, you are both grieved and angered by the pain a child experiences. So if wrath is anything, it is first... God's experience of grief and anger at the suffering, pain, and abuse of the world and their people. Now the second question, maybe the million dollar question, is then, how is this wrath experienced by us? We talk about God pouring their wrath out onto the world, or in Revelation 15, the passage we are in, the angels take bowls of God's wrath and pour it onto the world. So what does it mean to experience the wrath of God? Well, the most common language in the Bible used to describe God's wrath is God turned their face away. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 17 through 18, we get a picture of this dynamic. It says, And in that day, I, God, will become angry with Israel and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them, and in that day they will ask, have these, not, these disasters not come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Turning the face is about giving people what they ask for. In the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, the son comes to the father and demands his inheritance to spend and use it as he will, and the father allows it. The father turns their face away and allows the son to do what they will with their inheritance. And in the same kind of way, people come to God and demand their inheritance, the world and all that is in it, to use it as they would, and God allows them to. God allows their people to have the world and make it what they want, to do what image bearers are in some ways called to do create and cultivate. Turning their face is like a parent who has to make the hard decision 
to let go control. We see this in the plagues of Revelation chapter 16. In verse 6, God says to the people of the world that they have shed the blood of the prophets and the holy people, and so they will be given blood to drink as they deserve. It's an image of you have waged war, you have shed blood, you have made violence, and so violence will be the world in which you live. And again, in verse 14, the text says, demonic spirits will go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. We've already looked at this in previous passages, but the demonic spirits, they are part of this like dragon enemy that sows lies and deceits in the world. And it creates this picture of kings who believed lies and are now arrayed against one another. They are fighting one another. The consequences of the decisions that they have made is that they live in the world they have made. They decided to seize power through the sword, and now they have to live in a world of the sword. You followed the lies, and now you fight one another over it. In legal parlance, this is referred to sometimes as intrinsic versus extrinsic consequences to actions. An intrinsic consequence is one that is similar to a crime, whereas an extrinsic consequence is one that is dissimilar from a crime. So, for example, if you park in a no-parking zone, you might get a parking ticket. A parking ticket is an extrinsic consequence, just meaning that it is dissimilar to the action of parking in a parking zone. It's a piece of paper that demands money from you. It is not like the action committed. But an intrinsic consequence to parking in a no-parking zone might look like that if you parked there and then like a large semi-truck parked next to you so that you could not get out of your parking space, that would be a consequence that is connected to and similar to the action you took. You parked somewhere you should not. Someone parked next to you and now you cannot get out. Or similarly, if you touch a hot stove and you are burnt, that is an intrinsic consequence. The consequence is loaded into the action. Intrinsic consequences, or sometimes referred to as organic consequences, are almost always how the Bible talks about wrath, judgment, and sin. Because the writers of the Bible believe that evil is inherently self-destructive. In Psalm 7, verse 14 through 15, the psalmist writes this, Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble, and they give birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit that they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. The writers of the Bible see that evil has like a boomerang effect, that you dig a hole and fall into it. You enact violence, and so violence consumes you, that there is a self-destructive nature to the evil that we unleash on the world, an intrinsic consequence built into the decisions that we make. God does not need to throw fire on the world to judge it because we set the whole thing aflame ourselves. Evil is self-destructive. We live 
in the world that we made. We demanded our inheritance and God let us have it. But sometimes we wake up in the pig pen because that's where we put ourselves. And so wrath, it's not throwing fire. It's not the explosion of some pressure cooker. It is the grief of letting go. It is God turning their face away and allowing us to live in the world that we have demanded and made. Wrath is the grief of God letting go. Like a parent who refuses to enable a child anymore, it is painful and difficult. Now, wrath is not the final movement of Revelation 15. In the Song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15, verse 4, John sees a group of people worshiping with God, and they're singing this song of Moses and this Lamb, the song of Exodus, a new Exodus. And it ends this way, all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Righteousness and justice are always paired in the Bible. And if justice is, as we explored at the beginning, about making something right, about restoration, righteousness is about treating people rightly. It's about treating people as images of God, how they were created to be treated. It is about the pursuit of right relationship, enacting and living out the justice you believe in, the restoration you hope is coming. It is about treating people rightly. So here is what is amazing about this. The text says God's righteous acts will be revealed. Meaning God's treatment of us as image bearers. Meaning God's pursuit of right relationship. Now, I love the parable of the prodigal son. And that's probably obvious. I refer to it like a hundred times every single week. Very few parables speak to me in such a deep way. It's like the reason I, I find myself coming back to the Jesus story over and over and over again. And in the parable... The son comes to the father and demands his inheritance, and so doing sort of says to the father, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine that I can go spend it as I want. The son rejects the father, and the father, in grief and anger, lets the son go. And then as the son goes, the son experiences the intrinsic consequences of the actions and decisions they have made. They spend their money, waste it away, and wake up one day finding themselves in a hell of their own making. And as they wake up to those consequences, the son returns back to the father who meets them in grace and love and welcome, and who we find has always been waiting to offer the son a place at the table. That's a beautiful parable, but in some ways, Jesus, the very wonderful storyteller he is, omits what his own life reveals and adds to that story. 
Because in the story of the prodigal son, the son goes and the father waits. But in the story that is revealed to us through Jesus, well, the father follows the prodigal. The son leaves the home of the father for the factory up the river for Babylon. And the father goes to Babylon too. The father follows the son wherever he goes, leaving behind his own privilege and his own wealth and his own ability and placement in the heavens, as Philippians 2 says, condescending to the world below in order to pursue the son into every corner of the world. The father goes to Babylon, and every time the son chooses to live the lie of Babylon— He is met with righteousness and dignity, treated as an image bearer. This is the story of God that is recorded for us in the Bible. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, they buy the lie of that old snake, the dragon. And what does God do? God chases them and restores to them their place as image bearers. Yes, they cannot live in the garden. God will not enable with the tree of life their evil, but God meets them in righteousness and restores to them their dignity and says, you are still beloved. When Adam and Eve's child, Cain, kills Abel, God chases Cain and gives him a mark that sometimes we think of as judgment, but is actually protection and restores him and says, you are still beloved an image bearer. In Genesis 11, we find this very famous story of the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting that we still call this moment Babel because the Hebrew word is Babylon. And as the Tower of Babylon collapses and people are hurt and abused, God goes into Babylon and calls into relationship a person named Abraham and restores to Abraham that place as an image bearer, treating him with righteousness and dignity. At every moment of human rejection, every time we choose our own way, every time we ask for our inheritance to spend as we want, every time we try to make the world in our own image, the Father pursues to show us righteousness, to meet the lies of our own narratives and stories with the truth of our belovedness. And most ultimately, God does this as God steps into the world as Jesus. At every occurrence of Babylon, Jesus meets us with righteousness and dignity. Jesus heals the sick and shows us what right relationship looks like. Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and religious leaders alike and shows us what right relationship is like through his pursuit of right relationship with us. The Babylon cannot abide a story so good, so it aims its weapons at Jesus. The power of the beast and the dragon and Babylon collapse in on Jesus. And Jesus takes the very worst of our sin, our evil, the world that we have built in absence of God, and he absorbs it into himself. But Babylon Well, it forgot that evil is self-destructive. 
And so Babylon begins to collapse in on itself as it is confronted by its own evil. And as Jesus absorbs every iota of that evil, what does he do? Well, he meets us again in righteousness. God's mission is justice. It is the restoration and healing of the world. So Jesus enters the factory up the river. And he meets us with righteousness. He cares for those who are hurt and abused by the evil of the factory. But he also meets those of us who work in the factory with righteousness and dignity. And we'll talk in the weeks to come about the destruction of Babylon itself. But we have to remember that Babylon is overthrown in the service of enemy-embracing restoration, not as a condition before it. Babylon ends because God is concerned with restoration and enemy-embracing love. We need to know who our God is and what kind of rescue mission our God is interested in. Why is God overthrowing Babylon? What kind of kingdom is God establishing? It is one of enemy-embracing restoration, like a good parent who does not enable but pursues and stays connected, who meets our lies and our shame and our sin with righteousness. with dignity, who shows us again and again that we are beloved bearers of God's image. Church, what image of God do you have? What image of rescue and restoration do you have? Do you believe in a God who pursues you in righteousness to the very ends of the earth? Do you believe in a God who is wrathful, who is angered at pain and suffering and abuse? And do you believe in a God who is so truly in love, mad and grieved by the pain and suffering of our world that God enters into it? takes the very worst of it so that we might be healed, restored, as Babylon is undone. Church, what kind of God, what kind of rescue, what kind of hope do you believe in? Because that's what frames everything else that is to come. Let's pray. Jesus, today as we've heard your story, would we come to a deeper love and trust and connection with you? We bring so much of our own selves into the story, which is right and good, but sometimes it colors over you like our own biases, our own kind of love but theologies. And today would you unravel false thinking small imaginations, that we could have a bigger picture of you, a bigger picture of rescue, a more hopeful image of restoration that would lead us to deep trust 
deep connection and a deep knowledge of your righteousness. God, meet us today again and again. Show us who we are. And show us who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.